Wednesday on AOA. Volatility continues. We'll discuss it on the program. Tune in on Wednesday to AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here today. We've got a lot to cover in the world of agriculture. The commodity markets are on a turnaround Tuesday. We've got some green on the screen. Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk will join us here in just a moment with that breakdown. And in segment two, we're going to talk cattle. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack yesterday outlined some updates to the GIPSA rules and regulations. And Tanner Brainerd, Senior Director of Government Affairs from NCBA, will join us in segment two to break that down. Plus, take a look at the cattle contract library that's been under discussion in D.C. And in segment three, we're going to keep that focus on Washington, D3, but turn our attention to the EPA. This past week, we saw some action. I guess is the right word, on glyphosate's registration. We continue to see movement on dicamba. And Brooke Doerr, a staff attorney with the Penn State University Center for Ag and Shale Law, will be joining us to talk through exactly what the EPA is doing and how this could play out as harvest and winter moves into focus. And then at the end of the program, we're going to talk with our friend Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC about the tightness in the used farm machinery market. Let's start, though, with Mr. Garrett Toy. Garrett, soybeans are on a run today. What is driving the market? Well, I think you're seeing some technical bounce. I mean, despite the macro sell-off that we've seen this week, <clears throat> uh, we're still within the historical range. And we did see a pop in SIF markets yesterday. Cash markets kind of firmed uh, quite considerably. Um, you know, they're struggling to get beans down there. The, they're restricted drafts south of St. Louis. We're looking at the 50% mark on Mid-South Harvest. But I think we're still technical trade. The, the, the macro factors that we've had here this week with the, the general commodity sell-off, uh, we're seeing a bit of a bounce. I mean, crude's still under $80 here. We're trading $78.80 here this morning. But it is noticeable. You know, we just finished up a four-day uh, losing streak and no beans. We've, we only had one other. This is the first time we've had a four-day losing streak since mid-June. Uh, and that was a that was a macro induced sell off as well when the equity market sold off. And yeah, you know, we're in the, we're we're entering harvest here. Um, you know, we we retraced half of that sell off in June. Now that was June. This is harvest. I don't think we'll get that kind of rebound in here, but a bounce can be expected. Um, but you know, every day that we get closer to harvest, it's one more combine that's firing up, and, and I, I do think the farmers are going to be willing sellers of soybeans across the, uh, out of the field here once, uh, once we get into harvest a little bit further. Garrett, I think that's a really interesting point. You mentioned we've been seeing these macro factors, the big broad economy, global issues have been driving the ag trade, but we're moving into a period where fundamental news is going to matter. Of course, we set up the harvest season with the quarterly grain stocks report this Friday. Corn and soybeans, what are your expectations? What's the trade expecting heading into this report? Well, it's, 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 it's kind of, I was a little shocked, to be honest with you, when I saw the trade guess, the trade guesses here is that um, in reality, um, you know, the, the 
the trade estimates versus the September USDA stock or the USDA carryouts, I should say, are fairly close. I mean, the, the trade estimates for beans are 242 million bushel, uh, and the USDA was at 240 in September, and, and then the trade looking for uh, SEP1 stocks and corn at 1.512, and the USDA is at 1.525. So those are, I think, in my opinion, are fairly conservative estimates. But that being said, the trade's also looking for bean production to be increased 2 million because the USDA will come back and revise last year's crops now. Uh, but they're looking for a, a bigger bean crop by about 2 million bushel, which again makes it a little bit looser uh, as far as the S&D is concerned. But they're looking for a 24 million bushel smaller corn crop, which makes things a little bit tighter. But you know, when you look at, you know, yes, you know, the crop was late this year. We're two weeks late. Harvest, we should be further along in harvest. Um, and, and potentially that's some of the issues here. But considering the cash prices that we've seen out here would lead me to believe that ending stocks are quite a bit tighter than what uh, potentially the USD is expecting for. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be an interesting report. I haven't really had a chance to dig into uh, the historical ranges here as far as what the trade is expecting. But, um, you know, just we had strong cash. We had historic, historically high closes in the SEP D corn spread. SEP no sport, uh, bean spread traded historically high levels. Uh, cash was just unheard of in some of these areas. It, it leads you to believe that tightness, the, 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 the carryout is tighter. So, you know, we're, we're coming in, we're coming off a four-day sell-off on macro types uh, influences, but you know, we have seasonal influences harvest. But then we might have a fundamental input here where it may create. I don't think it's it's going to. Um, uh, you know, materially create a big rally environment because we're still going into harvest, but it's going to potentially change the mindset of the trade uh, as we try to forge a seasonal low in here at some point, and how we trade coming out of harvest. So, um, you know, if it's if we get a tight corn situation, uh, do we need to buy acres in South America? Um, you know, that sort of thing. Well, Garrett, you mentioned harvest is getting close 50% of that bean harvest done in the Mid-South. You're up in northern Illinois. What do things look like in your geography? Has anybody started running quite yet? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, in fact, we have, I had a friend who tried to run some early beans late last week, and they, they did a field or two, and they said that's enough. I think around here, uh, late week, we should... Uh, uh, we should be starting to see more people going. We actually had some spotty frost in some areas this morning uh, in some low-lying areas, but uh, I don't think I saw someone post a question on, on Twitter about if it's going to impact yields. It won't impact anything as far as we're concerned around here. In fact, it might help. <laughs> it might help a little bit. Um, you know, the crops around here, to be honest with you, uh, we had that 90-degree weather here about a week to 10 days ago, and that's when our bean crop kind of hit a wall. Uh, and we really saw beans turn real quick uh, and, and drop leaves really quick after those couple 90-degree days. And actually, the, the corn is, as well has kind of taken a turn. We've got some tar spot issues up in this neck of the woods, and uh, you can really see that set on when we had that you know, you know, uh, late seasonal, you know, you know, higher temperatures a week, week, 10 days ago. That really kind of put the finishing touches on this crop around here. I think we're going to have good crops. We'll see once the combines get going. Uh, we've been kind of blessed with rain up in here, but uh, you know the end of the season has been less to be desired, if you will. Yeah, no, I hear that. Garrett, speaking of less than to be desired, the strength in the dollar has been troublesome for commodities. Looks like we're taking a little break today. Is the enthusiasm for the dollar waning on the macro level? 
Absolutely not. I, 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 you know, from a technical aspect, I mean, we're, you know, coming off that Fed, uh, the, the Fed meeting week last week, uh, the, the potential for another what two percent increase in, in, in rates before the end of the year. Um, from a technical perspective, on the dollar index. Um, once we push through this 112, 113 area, there's very little resistance between here and 120 from the 2002 levels. So uh, I think I, I don't think that you fade the dollar here just yet. The, the you know the proverbial trend is your friend here, and until the Fed uh, or inflation shows signs of topping, uh, I don't think that you can really get too uh, too negative the dollar in here. Oh, boy, watching that 120 level in the dollar index, seven points higher than we are today. Garrett Toy, author at Ag Trader Talk, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And, folks, stick around. We're going to talk the cattle market with Tanner Bremer, Senior Director of Government Affairs at NCBA, when AOA returns after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with Vapor Grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. If you're not filling with Cenex Premium Diesel, then you're not giving your fuel system the premium treatment. Cenex Roadmaster XL comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, while restoring your power by up to 4.5% and your fuel economy by up to 5%. Typical number two diesel? I guess it covers the basics. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma. 
and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day here today. Over the past 18 months, 24 months, really, we have seen the cattle industry and the meat industry more broadly come under intense focus from Washington, D.C., and we've been seeing a trickle of new rules and regulations coming down to impact that industry, and yesterday certainly saw some more movement. Joining me today for an update on what is happening in Washington, D.C. is Tanner Bremer. He is the Senior Director of Government Affairs over at the National National Cattlemen's Beef Association and yesterday we got word that a pilot program for the cattle contract library is underway. This is a project that NCBA has been working on for some time. Tanner, are you excited to see this coming to fruition? You know, we certainly are. This is something that uh, NCBA has long been uh, an advocate for, and we're glad to see this market transparency tool uh, begin to sort of take form. I think uh, as we have seen this announcement come out of USDA, we're now looking towards what the next steps are. You know, I think they have the infrastructure in place to begin reporting, and now they need to start uh, information collection to get the necessary data to populate that contract library so it can be a useful tool for producers. Uh, there have been a lot of different ideas on how they should go about doing that, and our priority is to make sure that they are getting the information that they need to provide useful information to cattle producers across the country, but they're doing it in a way that respect, respects the private and proprietary business information of our members. Let's take a step back, Tanner, for our cattle producing audience who are unfamiliar with the concept of a contract library. We've seen these in the hog industry. They're fairly new here to the cattle side. Can you tell us how does NCBA think this is going to uh, to make life better here for the American cattle producer? Certainly. Well, there's uh, the uh, use of formula trades to market fed cattle has drastically increased over the past 20 years. And as a result of that, you've seen kind of regionalized markets start to pop up, and there are uh, innumerable means to differentiate different pens of cattle based on quality grade, on yield grade, certain program enrollment, certain uh, dressing percentages, and each of those are uh, associated with some sort of a consumer taste or preference that's been expressed through demand dollars in, in the retail and food service sectors. And so producers respond to those changing consumer tastes and preferences through financial incentives. And that's why these alternative marketing arrangements help producers to uh, communicate more directly with their end consumer in the beef markets and allow them to uh, continue to be producing the best and most sought-after beef in the country. What the contract library would do is it would alert consumers, or rather it would alert producers, uh, to the types of things that are being incentivized. So, for example, if there's a certain program that they can enroll in, like non-hormone-treated cattle, for example, that has a premium tied to it, they might consider uh, enrolling in some of those programs on their operation in order to capture some of the higher premiums that are uh, available for those types of cattle. 
copy that. So it sounds like really what we're saying is these are all of the options out there for contracts that exist in the cattle industry. Run through, see if there's one here that might work establishing a premium on your operation. Am I understanding it correctly? Absolutely. You know, information is power, and we want to arm producers with as much information as possible when they go into some of these pricing negotiations. If you're a feeder, those negotiations with a packer. If you're a cow-calf operator, then uh, those negotiations with a cattle feeder. We want you to know the true value of your cattle, uh, and this contract library is one step that we're taking uh, in partnership with USDA uh, to make sure that they are armed with that necessary information. All right, Tanner. So pilot project underway. They're building that up. Do you have an estimate or a timeline for when the full program might be up and operational? Well, according to USDA, they are anticipating some sort of a regulatory framework by which they can operate sometime early next year. And I would imagine that we'll see some sort of a library ready for public consumption shortly thereafter. Uh, One thing to note on this pilot program is that it is not a permanent program. It's only temporary. And it will expire on September 30th of 2023. Uh, So we'll have that information to see, make sure everything works properly. And then if that is determined to be a useful tool for producers, then it'll be up to us to go and advocate on Capitol Hill for permanency in this program. All right, so it might be a fairly tight window to utilize this pilot and make sure it's all working. Folks, stay plugged into this. Tanner, while we're talking, how can people stay up to date on the creation of the contract library and and access it once it's out? What should we be watching? You know, so this is uh, very important. USDA has announced that they are going to be using the livestock mandatory reporting statutes uh, in order to build and collect the necessary information for the library. So most of producers are familiar, at least somewhat, with livestock mandatory reporting and the critical market information it provides to all market participants. And I think that if producers or anybody that's interested wants to keep track of the contract library, that they should look for updates from the Agricultural Marketing Service at USDA, and they can do that by going to ams.usda.gov. All right, folks, keep track of that. Make sure you check out this contract library. See if it is a value for your operation. And then if it is, let's fight for it next year if uh, if we decide we need to keep it around. Tanner, while we've got you, we had comments yesterday from Secretary Vilsack over at the White House. Long-awaited updates to GYPSA are being rolled out. The Inclusive Competition and Market Integrity Rule. Can you talk to me a little bit about how this would change the, uh, the current situation? So this is the second of three expected rulemakings on the GYPSA front. And just for context for your listeners that maybe are not aware, this has been a 14-year undertaking with various rules proposed by USDA that haven't finalized for one reason or another, rules that have been proposed that have been subsequently defunded by Congress. So this is a long time in the making. This most recent announcement yesterday covers what we call the unfair practices and violations of the Packers and Stockyards Act umbrella, but it does not necessarily include some of the typical things we would see in a rulemaking with that header, uh, things like 202A and B. Uh, what we see in there is related to it, but not in the traditional sense. So there's three main categories that they're dealing with and trying to uh, prohibit, and that's discrimination, retaliation, and deception which on the surface seems like laudable things. You don't want uh, packers to be discriminating or retaliating or deceiving producers, but the devil, as is always the case, is in the details. And so as we are reading through this 180-page rule, we're reading through it with a fine-tooth comb to make sure 
that we're actually trying to target real issues and not hypothetical issues that will arm the federal government to overstep its authority to really dive into the details on some of these individually negotiated agreements and trying to assert their authority in a way that is not in line with the original vision of the Packers and Stockyards Act. We've read a lot in this rule so far that uh, would lead us to believe that there is a a whole lot of of stuff that the the government wants to, to get involved in that they have not in the past. And Tanner, I mean, this is coming hot on the tails of an administration that is really putting these issues in focus. You mentioned it's been 14 years to get to this point. It's 180 pages they released yesterday. What's the likelihood that this rule makes it through to finalization? You know, I think a lot of that will depend on the timetable that USDA wants to adopt. Now, what what we have in front of us now, what was announced yesterday, is what they are calling a draft rule, which means that it has not touched the Federal Register. There is, it's not officially out there for public consideration or feedback. Uh, but we do expect that to happen uh, soon, perhaps as early as the coming weeks. Uh, and when that happens, it will kick off a 60-day public comment period for producers and stakeholder groups and other interested parties to weigh in and give feedback to this administration. At the end of that, uh, they would go through a finalization process, uh, and that could happen you know, if they stick to this 60-day comment period as, as early as you know, January of 2023. Uh, so the odds of it finalizing, I would say, are pretty high. Now, whether or not that takes the full force and effect of law uh, without getting uh, defunded by perhaps a new Republican majority in the House of Representatives or even litigated and being granted a stay in federal court. Uh, so there's definitely a lot yet to unfold in this undertaking. Uh, it is definitely the starting gun and not the finish line. And so we'll keep you updated uh, as it moves through the process. Absolutely, Tanner. We'll be looking forward to that. And I did want to ask another component of yesterday's discussion was a $15 million agricultural competition challenge to state attorneys general. Is that in law already or does that still have to go through the whole process? Uh, No, they are using uh, dollars which have already been appropriated to the agency. They are just repurposing them. So that $15 million will allow USDA to enter into certain agreements with the state attorneys general. Uh, And the logic behind it from USDA is that sometimes when you're bringing antitrust cases, it can get pretty spendy because they are very difficult cases to, uh, to prove in a court of law. And so they need to bring in subject matter experts, Uh, And that can get pretty expensive pretty fast. I think the question that we have is, are we incentivizing the proper behavior here, right? Because, you know, we are a a country that is based on innocence and still proven guilty. And now we are establishing a pot of money to incentivize state attorneys general to go and find wrongdoing. And that's a question we're going to have to answer amongst That certainly makes sense. Tanner, I'm glad you raised that issue, folks. We've been talking to Tanner Bramer, Senior Director of Government Affairs at NCBA. Tanner, thanks for joining us today. You bet. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk glyphosate and dicamba when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. When you choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, you're putting proven yield advantage to work in your fields. Extend Flex soybeans offer elite genetics built on the proven performance of Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. In fact, farmers saw a four bushel per acre advantage and a 70% average win rate over Enlist E3 soybeans in 2020 germplasm trials. The Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. 
Always follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Once we take a look at the markets, grains, livestock, energies, equities, at least starting out uh, overnight and into Tuesday morning, trading their way higher as the dollar takes a bit of a breather. Commodity and financial traders, though, continuing to focus on the threats of a global recession as uh, we see the dollar halting its meteoric rise, and that is giving us a little bit of a room to bounce here just a bit. It's been all about demand destruction from both a U.S. and global recession that has shifted the ag market concerns from tight supplies to demand destruction as both the EU and China uh, economies have weakened. We see the sharp decline in the crude oil market and gasoline usage has adversely impacted ethanol demand as well. As we see that energy prices lower yesterday, bouncing slightly overnight, but crude oil is at its lowest level since early January, well before the start of the Russia-Ukraine war. The European energy crisis only worsened on overnight reports of three separate leaks in the Nord Stream gas pipelines running under the Baltic Sea. The leaks were said to be caused by unprecedented damage, and Europe is alleging it was due to sabotage. U.S. dollars up over 20% as the Dow is down 20% from its last peak. And we see that that inverse and the high U.S. dollar is going to be a headwind for commodities moving forward. But again, as the dollar comes off its highs here a little bit on Tuesday, it's giving traders a little bit of room to take back some of what has been lost here the last couple of sessions. Livestock trade mostly higher, although feeder cattle under a bit of pressure with corn moving higher. That's to be expected. We're going to be watching this week on the hog market, especially we've been down sharply the last couple of sessions. Got the quarterly hogs and pigs report coming up on Thursday. Now, overall, traders going to be continuing to watch harvest momentum as well, and that's going to be a sideline weight on the markets. But again, it all comes back to the U.S. dollar. That's a check of the market trade here. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi. I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. As I promised at the start of the show, we are going to keep the focus on actions in Washington, D.C. for this next segment. If you remember, go all the way back in time to February 3rd, 2020. There was very little talk of a pandemic. Commodity markets were low. Things were stable. And on that day, the EPA published the Glyphosate Interim Registration Review Decision, authorizing glyphosate out into the future. About a month later, Later, the first lawsuit was filed and it has been back and forth ever since on the glyphosate registration since that point. Joining me today to talk about some recent actions that have happened with glyphosate is Brooke Dewar. He's a staff attorney with the Penn State University Center for Ag and Shale Law. Brooke, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. Let's talk first about where glyphosate stands today. EPA made a big announcement last Friday. What'd they do? What they did was they withdrew, essentially, the interim decision that they issued, as you referenced, back in February of 2020. That was the first version that they showed the public anyway. Technically, it was issued in its form that has now been withdrawn in November of 2020. So that means that, uh, essentially, it's as if that never happened, and the previous registration review uh, and I believe it predates 2009, but I don't have the exact date on the tip of my tongue, um, is essentially what goes in its place. Now, um, uh, go ahead. You ask me the next question, and I can fill in a little more detail. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Well, well, let's talk. Let's take a step back. I think first and foremost, we've got the EPA coming after, or we should say, we have litigants coming after the interim registration. Brooke, what is it that these lawsuits are taking ex- uh, exception with in this registration for glyphosate? There's basically two things that were the primary focus. One was, and there's a there's a big um, category that's called the biological uh, evaluation of the uh, when you're doing a registration review. And um, and by the way, just to put this in context, this registration review is something that the federal law says is supposed to be done every 15 years with regard to registered pesticides and herbicides. Uh, the uh, there is a little more time in that 15-year period. They had done this early, so to speak. It was a few years before uh, uh, the 15 years was going to become an issue. And so uh, it, was a, it was a discretionary thing to do, uh, and it was done in a lot of ways um, because the outgoing administration wanted to get something accomplished on this at that time. In any event, the two, the two things that um, were complained about in this biological evaluation were, number one, the human health assessment. In other words, is there an adverse impact on human health? And that all goes back to the um, opinions out of some of the European organizations, particularly that there's an international organization on carcinogens uh, and cancer-causing substances. And they, while they have a somewhat inconclusive uh, statement that they go on this idea that it may be carcinogenic, that the uh, glyphosate may be carcinogenic. Well, uh, in the EPA's interim uh, decision and the human health assessment portion, uh, they 
basically didn't say they could rule out that it could be carcinogenic, but they said that they didn't, they were going to proceed ahead because uh, they didn't have um, a uh, definitive answer either way, whether it was or it was not carcinogenic. So and that's really what the court didn't seem comfortable with, which is the idea that, well, you have to take a position one way or the other, because if you, if you can't say that it isn't carcinogenic, then you have something you have to resolve, and, and they didn't resolve that. So that was the okay. first complaint about it. And, 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 and so that was, it, was, it was sort of, well, you've got to take a position. And, and EPA's argument all along is that this is extremely difficult to do, um, and the amount of research involved is somewhat bigger than they can do in, you know, with their resources, let's just say. All right. Right. Exactly. Right. It's a huge topic, Brooke. And so the question I've got now, I suppose, is looking forward. The court has said, you got to make a decision. Is this dangerous to human health or not? The EPA has said, hey, we're just going to pull this registration and start doing the research. W what does that look like? I guess, is there a risk that EPA could completely pull this glyphosate registration in 2026? It's possible. Um, I don't know whether there is enough empirical evidence out there in the research that is available to support them fully saying that it is carcinogenic, uh, but they can't say, you know, what they did say again, which is that we don't know one way or the other. Uh, so they're going to have to say yes or no to this question one way or the other by that deadline that you mentioned, which that is the 15-year deadline, because then they are really in, the, in a situation where they haven't complied with the, the pesticide regulatory uh, law in place at the federal level. So it's possible. I, I have a feeling that uh, there will probably be something less than that that goes on, but what it might be is really hard to picture. I have to think that uh, Bayer, um, you know, as a successor to Monsanto with the product line, I think that they're going to uh, have to work with EPA perhaps to uh, come up with some type of a formulation that uh, accounts for um, the potentials and, and, and maybe maybe they'll change the formulation by the time that comes around because they certainly uh you know it's a little bit of a roll of the dice to just say okay epa we stand by our product exactly as it is today 100 percent that that's uh yeah that's quite a roll of the dice there for bear to do so they may it, end it, up yeah, go ahead yeah, I was going to say, it, it is indeed a big roll of the dice. And so, Brooke, we'll continue to watch that. This glyphosate conversation is by no means over. Of course, the civil litigation is happening on the other side that we've been following. But while we've got you, I want to turn our focus to another majorly important chemical, and that's dicamba. We've seen the EPA all over the board on dicamba. It's been relatively quiet this year to the public, but I know action's been happening backstage. Bring us up to speed on dicamba's registration. Yes, there has been things sort of backstage going on. And what, what, was, what 
caused so much delay was, and put the big picture timeline here, um, the, a similar thing happened with the outgoing administration at the end of 2020, uh, issued a, this was a full-blown renewal, not an interim decision, this was a full-blown renewal of the registration uh, for uh, dicamba-containing products, and then litigation started. So it's been almost two years since that happened, uh, since the litigation started, and very little has happened in the court challenge. And why that is, is because there was a jurisdictional fight, sort of a turf war, between the D.C. Circuit, the District of Columbia Circuit Court, and a Arizona District Court, which is the one step below or below that in the federal system. Long story short, everybody has now filed paperwork in the Arizona District Court, agreeing that that's the proper place where jurisdiction for these legal challenges should be. And that's so the nationwide legal challenge, all of them will be ultimately heard in the Arizona District Court. But we've been twiddling our thumbs for two years waiting for that. And that's not even set in stone yet because the D.C. Circuit hasn't technically re sort of relinquished control of the case. But all the parties want it to go because now here we are. You know, we made it through uh, one growing season after the court invalidated the, the original Dicamba registration. Then it, that was early in 20. 2020 or 2019, I can't even remember. Then the 2020 renewals made it official that there's a completely valid registration for Dicamba and has certain restrictions and it's in place. And then that litigation started. Nobody got a stay that invalidated or somehow uh, made the renewal uh, not effective. So it's been effective for these last two growing seasons. So now we are wrapping up you know, our second growing season with this interim, or excuse me, with, I shouldn't say interim, with the renewed decision that is under legal challenge. Are we going to have to go through a, yet another growing season while this litigation is still pending? I think the answer to that is yes. And, and the risk, Brooke, as I understand it, is that if growers buy dicamba, planning to use it for the 23 season, the court case could, could happen next summer, potentially, and you could be that. forced to throw it all out, right? Just like, yes, just like happened back in, I think it was 2019, if I, no, I think it was 2020. Yes, it was 2020. Just like what happened in 2020 could happen again yeah. in sometime in 2023. That's exactly right. Now they have their All right, lots to keep our eyes on, Brooke, but unfortunately, we've got to let you go. Where can listeners keep up to date with the work PSU Ag Law Center is working on? Just go to aglaw.psu.edu. And that's our website, and uh, we have plenty of information on the glyphosate and dicamba litigation. And that litigation is going to continue, as we just heard from Brooke. Our thanks to Brooke, to her staff attorney there at the PSU Center for Ag and Shale Law. Folks, stick around. We're going to talk used machinery values with our friend Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. 
Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination. Our honesty our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with Vapor Grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. And we're live here outside the Perez family home just waiting for the... And there they go! Almost on time this morning! Mom is coming out the front door strong with a double-arm kid carry. Looks like Dad has the bags. Daughter is bringing up the rear. Oh, but the diaper bag wasn't closed. Diapers and toys are everywhere. Ooh, but Mom has just nailed the perfect car seat buckle for the toddler. And now the eldest daughter, who looks to be about 9 or 10, has secured herself in the booster seat. Dad zips the bag closed, and they're off. Ah, but looks like Mom doesn't realize her coffee cup is still on the roof of the car. And there it goes. Oh, that's a shame. That mug was a fam favorite. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just nail the big stuff 
like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Learn more at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Ernie Johnson Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles. And college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill. Or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD. Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, we appreciate you making AOA a part of your diet here on the radio today. Over the past two years, we have seen a perfect storm develop in the machinery markets. We had the COVID pandemic shut down some production facilities, throw supply chains into disarray. And then we had farm incomes creeping up in 2020, climbing incredibly in 2021 and still staying elevated up here. That has made it a scramble to keep good iron on the farm. Casey Seymour, founder of Moving Iron, tracks all of these issues as he's watching the used and new machinery markets. And he joins us today for an update. Casey, is it it's still a hot market in the used equipment space? Uh, that would be an understatement, Mike. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty hot market right now. <laughs> Absolutely. It has been for some time. Casey, as you look out at the farm equipment sectors today, where are you seeing the hottest activity? This time of year, i got to imagine combines are bringing the most. Yeah, you know, combines are uh, on the, the forefront of many people's minds right now. I mean, row crop tractors are always a hot commodity. Um, kind of regardless of what's going on in the economy, but we are starting to see some movement, uh, a little more demand uh, in in the uh, the combine sector, and but it's kind of like everything else, Mike. It's what's available right now. Um, I think one of the things you can take a look at is if you go out on, on a lot of the listing sites and take a look around. It feels like there's a lot of combines out there, but just a small percentage of those combines are actually for sale right now. So. Um, I am looking to see more of the of the available uh, inventory to be more readily available sometime between um, starting kind of now through uh, the first of March, when a lot of these new 2021, 20 or sorry, 2022 uh, late fall deliveries get deli- uh, get handled here sometime in in that November December timeframe. And Casey, and that's such an important point. Obviously, the excitement for used machinery is based on the fact that it was tough to come by new machinery. In your conversations with dealers and with manufacturers, are the supply chains getting put back together? Are we going to see a greater supply of new iron coming to dealers? Unfortunately, I don't think so. I think 23 is going to look a lot like 22 did um, in a lot of ways. Um, At least that's what I'm preparing for. I haven't seen anything or heard anything that says much is going to change in that uh, that's kind of realm of things. So, uh, you know, looking out, Mike, I'm I'm looking at maybe late late fourth quarter of 23 before we start really seeing any real um, movement in in supply. Oh boy! So it could be real interesting for the next 16, 18 months. With that being the case, Casey, we're headed 
into harvest and then it won't be too much longer we've got the end of the year we've got all of those tax incentives as a reason to get some of that money spent is it going to be a powder keg come this december in the auction space i'm you know i am kind of positioning ourselves for that i mean i think there's going to be a lot of movement um in that october november uh december time frame and even into the first of the year just like we've seen the last two years january february and march have been some of the highest moving um time frames um, in a lot of cases, just as much as we've seen in that last quarter of the year. So it's going to be an interesting time, Mike, to watch what's happening in the auction marketplace. I do think that that's going to be the readily available iron that's out there. Um, but that being said, there is going to be some of that stuff that comes into the dealership. A lot of stuff that's uh, on dealership slots now that are coming in on trade, a lot of that stuff is pre-sold, uh, a good percentage of that is. So that's going to also put some added pressure on the market too. Speaking of added pressure, we've got interest rates climbing, Casey, and I know in agriculture over the last two or three years, it's been very common for farmers to just pay cash when they're out there buying equipment. They've got the resources for a lot of folks to get that done. As interest rates climb, though, I've got to imagine the used market would be first hit because wouldn't most of those buyers use financing? Yeah, overwhelming majority of, of buyers are using um, financing right now, especially with the, with the price of equipment the way it is and what that looks like. So. Um, you know, I haven't seen anything yet, Mike, that points towards a decline um, in uh, buying equipment because of interest rates. Um, I do think something like that will be coming to probably creep more into the conversation in 23 than what we saw here in 22. Um, you know, the Fed has made it pretty clear they're going to continue to do what they're doing um, when it comes to interest rate hikes uh, until they feel like they've combated um, inflation as much as they can. So it is going to be a a big play in 23 is how interest rates play into the purchasing of equipment for sure. Absolutely. And it's going to shape the way businesses run. Casey, we talk about dealers from the perspective of the grower, but you work with them from the perspective of their businesses. Can you provide us a little update? How have ag equipment dealers dealt with the last two years and are they confident heading into 23? You know, it's, it's uh, kind of the new norm now, Mike. So when you're, you're talking about shortages, whether it's in parts or whether it's in equipment, whatever it might be, it's, it's something that they've um, just grown accustomed to and, and worked around the best they can. I will say that, that the dealer networks have done a good job of working with each other to, to accommodate where they can accommodate um, and help each other out as much as they can. Um, but that's, that's been going around. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a good opportunity for a lot of dealerships to get a lot of um, older equipment that they've had for a while out and that's happened over the last couple of years there's still a few things kind of hanging out there's some specialty pieces here and there that are that are probably still have a little uh, age on them but for the most part the equipment that's coming through now is is, is really fresh and quick turnaround times and it, it, it is a benefit to the end user because it hasn't sat outside forever you know it's 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 ready to go to the farm so there there is some some benefits to that well, that's good to hear. Casey, before we let you go, one of the big trends we've seen at the dealership level is consolidation. I've got to imagine higher prices, higher interest. We're going to see that trend accelerate in the future. Yeah, I mean, that's always something that's been out there. I think every manufacturer wants to see their their footprint of each dealer's footprint grow, and especially with the demand of, of what the uh, end user producers are, are wanting from, from dealerships and manufacturers. Um, you know, it's economies of scale, and that's what we're looking at right now. So I think that that's going to be a trend that continues, you know, for the foreseeable future. I don't, I don't see that ever slowing down. 
All right, that trend is here to stay, folks. We've been talking to Casey Seymour. He is the founder of Moving Iron LLC and the host of the Moving Iron podcast. Check that out to keep up to date with equipment listings. Casey, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it, Mike. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll talk more Agriculture of America right here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Most folks just stick with the diesel engine oil they know, because why sweat the details? But you don't. You're one of those who'd make the switch, and we're talking to you. Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. While the others experience wear and tear, you give complacency a kick in the pants. Senex Maxtron Diesel Engine Oils, oil that runs smart. As growers consider cover crop options, the Seed Innovation Protection Alliance would like to remind you that many small grains are protected by some intellectual property and are not allowed to be used for seed production. Talk to your authorized seed dealer for information on your cover crop seed options. The Seed Innovation Protection Alliance thanks growers for buying new, professionally produced seed from authorized seed companies and dealers. To report a seed infringement, call 1-844-SEED-TIP. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.